you want to get the latest news about our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and live events, visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. The argument that I make to brands and to companies and, and to nonprofits is, hey, if you're already producing you know, YouTube videos and you've got a blog and you're doing social media and you've got a website, you should also be doing podcasts. You can take the radio broadcaster out of radio, but you can't stop them from being an audio storyteller. This week, I talked to a newscaster with 30 years of experience on air. He's now blazing trails as a podcaster. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media. Today, I'm talking to Richard Davies via Skype. Richard is a radio journalist, speaker, podcaster, and news junkie. For three decades, he worked at ABC News, covering stories like the 2008 Wall Street financial crisis, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the collapse of the Twin Towers in New York City on 9-11. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for reaching out. No, that's great. You look like somebody who would, who would have an interesting perspective both on broadcast journalism but also uh, podcasting because that's uh, where, where you've ended up after, after three decades. So um, let's start with your journalism career. I usually like to call it a, a journalist journey. You know, how did you get involved uh, in journalism? And, and tell me about your career. It has been a journey. And it started at the age of nine when my father. That, uh, that's the first a, a, that, 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 that was that old. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a, a late, late entry. Yeah, my dad, when I think I was in third grade, bought a big Sony reel to reel tape recorder that he was very proud of. And I started playing around with it. And I actually have a recording of myself somewhere, not sure where, of doing newscasts, of making up stories about uh, people uh, doing various things. And that kind of began a lifelong fascination with not only news, but also radio and audio. So you, so you fell in love with, with audio. Well, maybe the sound of your voice at a very early age. <laughs> Probably was at that age, yes. Yeah, well, and also, and I, I assume you got to a point in your journalist career where you weren't making stories up about people. At some point, well, somebody uh, told you about that. Yeah, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that, that arrived at some early stage. Yeah, yeah, so, it did. My, my first job actually out of university was at a newspaper because I couldn't get a good job at a radio station. And uh, that helped ground me somewhat and uh, taught me some of the discipline, perhaps, that has stayed with me for a long time. You were a broadcast journalist for a very long time. And, uh, you know, our industry kind of changed. You know, how did you see that sort of change over your time in, in news? Yeah, I think that over time, journalism has become less interested in issues and more interested in clashes, controversy, and celebrities, which is a sad statement, but I think that to some extent it's true. And one of the reasons is that journalism, and especially broadcast journalism, has become more of a business. It's become more of what drives the ratings. And often what drives the ratings is instant gratification. And uh, that kind of falls in those, those three types of stories where you're, you're either thrilling people or shocking people or surprising people rather than informing people. I'm not saying that all forms of broadcast journalism are like that. But I do think there's a bias towards over-dramatization in journalism. 
that is perhaps now more pronounced than ever with the rise of, of cable TV being so prominent in the past 20 years. So tell me about, you know, being a broadcaster. What, what was it that you, you know, what were some of the highlights in your career, the, the things that sort of stand out to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been very lucky to be able to cover a bunch of really interesting stories. I think that my favorite story, because it was so joyful and I was so aware that I was right from the moment of being able to cover it, that I was covering history, was the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989, when uh, mm. it really was kind of this moment where it became clear that the old kind of ossified Cold War was drawing to a close and that we were going to have something new and hopefully something better with uh, less rigid rivalry between what was then the Warsaw Pact, the communist nations of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and Western Europe. So that was really cool to be able to cover that. I've covered four presidential campaigns and traveled, I think, 35 to 40 states, which is and sometimes exciting, sometimes incredibly boring. If you've been on the, the campaign trail, <laughs> you spent a lot of time waiting and listening to exactly the same speech as the one you heard before from the candidate who you're covering. But there, that was interesting. And then just various conferences. And the most jarring and, and shocking story I covered was the, the day of, of 9-11 on the streets of New York. And you were you were on the street? Were you out covering? Yeah, was yeah. It, I, I was I was sent down. I, I was at the time at ABC News on the Upper West Side in, in Manhattan, and the TV monitors were on in the in the office when I was there, and uh, we saw the a recording, I think, of the first plane going into the World Trade Center, and then we saw the second plane live, and then it instantly became clear that at that moment that there had been an attack as opposed to uh, an accident with a plane accidentally flying into the World Trade Center. And I was sent down to cover it. And uh, of course, New York almost immediately became paralyzed. And I walked dozens of blocks to get fairly close, never right underneath or right at the side of the World Trade Center. But I covered a lot of how the city reacted in the two weeks after that awful day. So, you know, it was something that I'll never forget. And in those days afterwards, fell in love with New York City in a way I never had before, because I think that the city rallied and it was an extraordinary place to be and to, to live through those times, which aren't talked about a lot, those times when the city came together in support of each other. It was a real time of community spirit, which was deeply moving. And uh, has made me actually kind of before that those days I lived outside of New York. I lived in the suburbs, but but as a result of that experience, it uh, changed my mind about where I should live. And now I live in New York City. So, what was the nature of the types of stories that you were doing? Were they the recovery? Were they human interest? Were they yeah? They were they were mostly they were mostly recovery and human interest. I spoke to a number of, of for instance, counselors, some of whom were uh, men and women of the cloth who went down to the World Trade Center and counseled the recovery workers who were doing very difficult, dangerous, and unhealthy work. I also spoke to people who were giving blood and spoke to a whole range of different people and how they reacted to what happened. Those were very dark and difficult days in the city. We thought we were going to 
face another attack. I remember driving under the George Washington Bridge, which spans the Hudson River, and thinking, you know, if this bridge is here in six months' time, that'll be a great thing. You know, it's a very uncertain time. But uh, yeah, I had my uh, my own experience in covering 9/11 uh, here in the Washington D.C. area. I was working at a community newspaper, and in Arlington was one of our our papers uh, where the where the Pentagon was, and so we, you know. We mobilized our entire staff to cover our communities so the people who were working yeah. at the Pentagon were, you know, are among our readers, among our audience. And so for the weeks that, you know, for us, it was less because we were a weekly paper. It was less a, you know, on the spot sort of news thing, but it was more telling those those stories of the families who lost, you know, family members. And, and then also, uh, you know, how the community kind of rallied around this really kind of horrific event. And, yeah. and, and it's 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 neat to see. You know, that's that's a role that doesn't always get talked about when you're thinking about journalism, that, that we're there to tell the good stories, the, the, the human interest, the, the healing stories. Uh, yeah, sometimes after. to stitch the community back together. You yeah. Know? Again, that's one of those things that we don't always talk about. Not that we're asking for praise or anything, but that's kind of what our part of what our role is. And I, th- I think it sometimes gets lost in this big dialogue about what media is and what role it has in society. So you're no longer in broadcast, but you now uh, are in podcasting. What, what got you into podcasting? Well, I think it's really an exciting new frontier of audio. And there are no rules that have been written saying you must do podcasts in a certain way or follow a certain format. And after working in network broadcasting for years where, you know, there are great people I was working with. But being assigned and essentially being told to work within a system where your opportunities for creative freedom were somewhat limited, even though the stories were often exciting to cover, you know, I just thought I've got to get out there and do this myself and be my own program director and make my own stuff. And it's just been a fascinating voyage of, of learning and discovery. I've been so lucky to meet a lot of great people who I've interviewed and also worked with. I've learned from a lot of young people. And I've also unlearned many things because you have to unlearn some of your radio skills in order, I think, to be a successful podcaster. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I'm not a, you know, I work at a radio station, but by no means am I am I a broadcaster. They wouldn't let me on here. <laughs> I don't have those you types have a, of... You have I a good voice. I, uh, yeah, I, I worked into this, but... There is a definitely a broadcast approach. There are certain ways to tell stories in a, in a news environment. I think when you look at something like everybody kind of points to, you know, public media, public radio, because they've, you know, they've made a pretty good transition with a lot of their shows into podcasting. And, and part of it is because of, you know, the way they tell their stories fits easier into, I think, the podcasting model. And yes, plus, that's true. Plus, yeah. they also have kind of a platform where they're able to push out to people who are already interested in that type of content. So I think they're sort of ahead of uh, other broadcasters, I think. That's absolutely right. I think that their long form content is much more or much more. Yeah, much more similar to what podcasting is doing. Yeah, no, and I like the idea that you said that you had to unlearn some things. But, you know, it's also a lot of times when you get into this sort of digital realm when you start telling stories in a different way you are using some of the same skills but it's your thinking about about them changes and the way you use them changes Um, yeah and the other thing you're doing and i think that when you're a radio broadcaster you have to be aware that people are constantly tuning in and tuning out 
and that that someone may have only listened to half of what you were doing because it's live. And with a podcast, I think that you assume that your audience is actually paying attention. You know, the radio sometimes is on in the background. Podcasts are rarely on in the background. They're usually consumed by one person, often with earbuds, so the voice is literally in your ear, and at a time when you're not distracted by other forms of media that are on the screen of either your smartphone, your tablet, or, or a TV screen. So that kind of demands something a little bit different. And that's the, even though we're, you know, radio is dealing with audio, podcasting is dealing with audio, it's different in some ways. And it's been that aspect of unlearning and learning that has been fascinating to me, as well as, I think, repeating myself that there are no rules, that it's the Wild West in the podcast jungle. It's so interesting what shows have been surprise hits and some things that have not done as well as expected. So what uh, what shows out there are the ones that you that kind of make you go, wow? Well, I think that my favorite, and I'm a news junkie, is The Daily. It does make me go, yeah. wow. And it's interesting that it wasn't produced by a public broadcasting company. It was pr produced by The New York Times or is produced by The Times. And what is so impressive to me is that that show, from a journalistic point of view, they introduce you almost every day to a different New York Times print journalist, not someone who you'd necessarily ever have heard of, but in many cases, people with very deep knowledge of the beats that they're covering. And it's nice as a journalist to see reporters as opposed to opinion makers being celebrated and being listened to and the, the show giving them time to tell a story and also not tell you as a listener what to think. I often find that, that the daily is nuanced, that, that even on subject as divisive and politically charged as gun control, that you can walk away from one of their shows and go, hmm, that's interesting. They've changed my mind a little bit on something. And I, I think it's, it's really a show that does encourage people to have an open mind, and I like it for that. I think there are opportunities in journalism for for more of this type of podcasting where you have newspapers, news outlets that bring their journalists and just talk about their reporting and that are able to tell their story journalistically, not not necessarily from like a, you know, like a CNN or a Fox News, you know, right, I'm, right. I'm a pundit on this thing because I actually no. wrote about it. But you're actually you're not necessarily trying to convince somebody of something. You're not trying to argue one particular yeah. side. But, you know, this person said this. This person said that. I covered a similar story two years ago. Here's what I did then and how it's changed. You know, giving people yeah. that sort of context is, I think, exactly an and in that vein for, for those audience members who are who are news junkies also check out the podcasts that are made by the financial times and the economist they're not as slickly produced as the daily but they're made with that similar sense of of open-mindedness and curiosity and that's something i don't know maybe it's because i'm a journalist but the one thing that bugs me when i'm list sometimes when i'm when i'm listening to people debate subjects is that they seem to be so certain of their opinions i'm always changing my mind. And, and I think that just occasionally being open to ambivalence or looking at things from a different reference point, you know, is, is a good way to go. You, you had a guest on your show recently, yeah. um, Nigel Poor, 
of Ear Hustle. And I just loved her approach. She makes a podcast about the prisoners at San Quentin. And one of the big reasons for making that is to open people's minds to a, a new way of looking at prisoners. And I, I just thought that was that was a great show that you did with her. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm just glomming off of her wonderful podcast. <laughs> Actually, by <laughs> reporting is, hey, here's this really neat podcast. Uh, come and listen to me, then you can go listen to her. But because uh, that's actually how you grow your audience. But anyway, no, and I think that's a great example of somebody who's I mean, that just shows so much the power of this type of storytelling, because the thing that you were describing before about the fact that you're in people's ears, because I think it's more like more akin to podcasting is more akin to to reading. When you bring something into somebody's actual head, you're making that sort of connection to them. Once that that storytelling is in there, then you can begin to expose people to different types of thinking and then they begin to perceive things differently. That's why ear hustle, I think, is is so powerful. Absolutely. But also, I really like the interview format, too. And that's what we're doing on our podcast, How Do We Fix It?, where I'm on with my buddy Jim Meggs, who's the former editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics. And we've been friends for years. And the show isn't just about journalism and about looking at solutions and looking at different topics. It's also about a friendship. And and that's kind of cool because you don't get a chance usually to do that with broadcasting. You know, there are very few shows that are about a friendship, whereas there are a number of podcasts that are around that. Yeah. And actually, if you think about it, how did you know, what were the big what were the big podcasts? What were the big radio shows before the, the like the morning zoo type shows, which were two people talking? And it was like supposed to be these just people shooting the breeze, but it, it had become so artificial and I think because yeah. because the audience for podcasts demand authenticity, that you know these conversational interview type shows are really sort of you know grab people's attention because it, they sense that yeah this is a real rapport between people I you know I'm part of that conversation I'm in that group I'm not somebody's not putting me on trying to make believe that you know that they're somehow hey we're these great friends and we're off the radio and really they're just you know doing doing radio stuff broadcast stuff so yeah well one of the things that nigel poor told you about podcasting i think that she said that ear hustles had five million downloads which uh boy i wish i had five million downloads i tell you what let's split that i think if we split that in half i think we'd both be happy (laughs) right but even even getting five million downloads doesn't make you a ton of money and i think that's one another reason why podcasting is so authentic because very few people are making a ton of money as podcasters. They may be making good money if they're public radio hosts or hosting commercial radio or television shows. Sure, they're making good money. But as podcasters, not many of us are making a lot of money. And I think that means that most of us who are doing them are doing them because we love what we're doing. And that's also a reason for them being authentic. And then the other reason, I think, is is that podcasting as a medium is more intimate than broadcasting. You know, I, it's funny that you say you're, you're not making money. Um, my, my brother, who lives in Indiana, and, you know, I talk to pretty regularly, but he only just within the last month or so started listening to my podcast. And we had a conversation on uh, last Sunday, and he's kind of like, so... 
do you make any money doing this? <laughs> and I'm just like, because when everybody says something like that to me, I'm like, well, that's not what the point, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the things that I get out of it, that, that enrich my life, enrich, certainly this, this podcast has enriched my, my professional life. I, I meet a lot of journalists. I, I talk to thought leaders. They get me to think about my job and the way I do things differently. But, you know, I got a book out of this podcast. I, I got a chance to teach a class, which I got paid for. So technically in some way I was able to make sure. money at, make money sure. on the podcast but no you, you, i'm not making money out of this podcast i'm doing it partly because i think this is an important subject to explore but also because i enjoy it and you know and hopefully it you know gives enjoyment to other people and they, they're getting something out of it and, and that's opens up another can of, can of worms is like oh sure. then you must hear from your audience constantly about how great things are it's like no I hardly hear anything from 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 my audience either on social media or or comments or anything. But occasionally I do, and that's great. But you know, this is podcasting. This is this is the world we live in. We have to we have to deal. So sure. tell me about how did you start uh, the podcast that that you're doing? Yeah, well, I left ABC News full time in uh, 2015, and I left thinking that I want to do something new. And what I came up with after talking with friends and also chatting with Jim, who's my co-host, is we both had this certain frustration that journalism is, is sensational and journalism is covering the who, what, when, where, and sometimes why of an event, but not covering now what. And that's what How Do We Fix It tries to do. We're a solutions journalism show. And we're looking at, we invite a different guest on every week, and we ask the person, who's usually an expert and, and pretty smart, what kind of ideas can you bring to the table to improve the subject that we're discussing? We did a show on climate change, for instance, not for people who are already convinced that climate change is a big problem, but for skeptics. How would you convince someone to take climate change seriously. And we had Gernot Wagner, who at the time was a senior economist for Environmental Defense Fund. And he said, if there was a one in 10,000 chance of a tree falling on your house, you'd buy insurance. And that's what most of us do. We buy homeowners or, or renters insurance. So what about with climate change? Why aren't we taking steps to try and reduce the threat of climate change in case it really is a disaster? I thought that was kind of a creative argument. And that's the spirit of the show is to try and find arguments and ideas that advance our understanding of a subject rather than just regurgitating, you know, say left versus right or well-worn arguments that we've heard already. Yeah, I think there's a hunger for in people to have something that sparks thoughts in their brains. I don't, I don't think you get yeah. a lot of deep thinking with the way the the left and white right coverage of of all the news. I, you know, I know you yeah. don't get the nuance of stories. Sometimes there's no right right and left of a story. It's just and, and, what it and is. And also, it, it assumes that everybody is either right or left. We had a fascinating guest from Stanford University a few weeks ago on How Do We Fix It, a guy called Maurice Fiorina. And his main point around the electorate was, actually, most people are neither very left nor very right. They're somewhere in the middle. And that even though on cable TV or very often other forms of media, you have uh, you know someone who's 
strongly Democrat or strongly Republican arguing out a particular issue, that most voters are not as divided as career politicians are. Yeah, and actually there the, this, I forget what it's called, there's this thinking about the way, uh, I think Vox did a really great explainer about this, that how do you bring sort of new ideas into a very politically charged environment like that. And the way you do that is you have somebody who comes on the news and says something that nobody in a rational mind would would support. But because they, they've presented it, what happens is the middle shifts a little bit more in their direction. And I forget what it's called. If I can find the Vox link, I'll, I'll try to include it with this podcast. But anyway, let me to circle back. Hey, is that the dog that you were talking about before? Yes, the dog is outside barking. Oh, okay, cool. And there's another dog on on the uh, on the sofa, <laughs> wondering what's going on. Well, cool. Yeah, I think this is the first time we have a canines on the podcast, which I'm all happy about. So, where do you see podcasting going in the next few years? I. I'm helping other people do podcasts. And I think that where I'm helping clients do podcasting is reaching audiences and communities that are not served by traditional media. One example was, is uh, we do a, we produce a podcast for Haggerty Insurance, which about 10 years ago decided to do an online magazine for classic car enthusiasts. If you have a classic car, if you have a 68 Corvette, then you know what I'm talking about. You know about Haggerty because instead of you know going to a traditional car insurance company, uh, you go to one of the specialists. And so Haggerty has built its business around people who are very passionate uh, and are car collectors, and that's a ready-made community. And the first thing that Haggerty did was to produce an online magazine, and they've asked us to do a podcast for them. We have about 10 episodes up so far. That's an example. I think that podcasting will move more towards those communities and communities perhaps that are already served by you know, printed media, by pamphlets, or, or maybe they're served by uh, blogs or they're served by Facebook pages. And people will make more podcasts that are highly specialized and serve different niches. So I think that's part of where podcasting is going. But I also think that, you know, we're just going to see a continued increase for the foreseeable future in the total number of podcasts. Because, and I, you, you mentioned this actually in one of your episodes, the barrier to entry is so low, you don't have to spend a lot of money on equipment in order to do something really good or to serve the people that you want to reach. I think another area where podcasts are going to grow is local podcasts, yeah. because while local newspapers have really suffered because of, of the growth of the internet, I think that you're going to see a renaissance and a growth in, in local podcasts, podcasts that are produced for very specific communities. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people kind of look at podcasts and they, they, they see it, okay, well, this is kind of going to be, this this should be a model like TV or this should be a model like like radio. But I think, you know, those two mediums have sort of set their environment around it. But I think the podcasting is such a very different thing. It can be so super niche 
It, it could be right. to such a small audience and be successful. Yeah, it could be like a blog, you know. Yeah, exactly. That there's no way that you're going to scale that to like a like a radio station type, you know, like a budget to to pay for that. But you but you you might do in some circumstances yeah. if you have content already. I mean, it's kind of interesting that a lot of magazines and also nonprofit communities. I'm I'm thinking of say environmental groups that already have big audiences. Many of those organizations have yet to jump into podcasting in a serious way. They may have the occasional podcast with a couple of talking heads going back and forth with each other. But, you know, a well-produced podcast by, say, a group like um, uh, the Sierra Club or, or Environmental Defense yeah. or, you know, even the NRA, somebody on the other side of the political spectrum, I think that those kinds of podcasts are, are waiting to be produced. Um, they haven't been made yet as much as they will be in the future. I agree. I think that's, we, we certainly haven't reached our saturation point. I think what's going to no. happen is we're going to get to a point where everybody is so familiar with podcasts and they, they like the medium that they're going to seek out content that sort of serves their particular interests. And you'll see how right. more of these sort of niche things that are, are feeding those types of audiences. But some of them will be, you know, pretty big communities. I mean, I think yeah. I think it's interesting, and, and I think we'll have a lot more of this. HBO took up the podcast Two Dope Queens. Public radio is now going to rebroadcast the daily. I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll see podcasts instead of of being, um, you know, on their own. They'll they'll merge more into this constant stream of media because the argument that I make to brands and to companies and, and to nonprofits is, hey, if you're already producing, you know, YouTube videos and you've got a blog and you're doing social media and you've got a website, you should also be doing podcasts because podcasts are no longer a niche medium in terms of the overall number of people who listen to them. I mean, 30, I'd say 25% roughly, and this number keeps going up each year. Yeah. Um, about 25% of Americans listen to several podcasts a week. The podcasts are definitely on their radar screen. And speaking as somebody who's always loved to listen to audio, I like to get my information through the spoken word. I mean, I, I don't just listen to podcasts. I, I listen to books as well on audible yeah yeah and that's you know that that that's another form the same sort of sort of audio storytelling before we wrap up i want to talk about you know on your website you have you point to some podcasts that you don't necessarily produce but that you see, see as high quality the one that, that that i i listen to regularly well comparatively regularly regularly because it doesn't come out that often is is dan carlin's hardcore history what do you, what do you yeah, like, isn't that great what do you like isn't about that, that fabulous yeah what do you like about that podcast <laughs> well i like the first thing I like about it is the guy's chutzpah in that he breaks every single rule in the book. I mean, I think the typical episode of oh, hardcore history is about four hours. Four or five hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one guy, Dan Carlin, who's a former talk radio personality in a, in a local market, I think in the Midwest, I'm not sure. And he knows how to speak in a disciplined way without a script a skill he's developed over many years. And he's also a history buff, genuine history yeah. buff, really knows his stuff. And his, I think it's six episodes, World War One Countdown to Armageddon, <laughs> were extraordinary. I mean, they were like, you know, these four-hour chats. I just, I, I was just stunned listening to him because he's so disciplined in yeah. the way that he speaks. You know, they don't sound edited at all. They just sound like this guy sitting and telling you a story 
about World War One from the opening shots to the aftermath more than four years later. That's a great podcast. Now, that series of it in, in particular, the thing I really like, because as soon as you said World War One, the thing that I immediately thought of was, it's funny, you know, he does his four-hour podcast, and at the very end of it, he, he has his little show notes, and he always makes some sort of crack about people are telling are telling him to try to, to get it more often, and he can't produce this quality of a podcast, turn it no. around on a weekly basis, so it's always going to take him a long time, but even he, in his final episode for the World War One, I, I think he kind of relented. He was kind of like, look, it's sort of like, I can't, I can't do this for the rest of my life. We're going to do everything in this episode. And that was like a, a six hour podcast because he wanted to wrap everything up in yeah. one episode so he could move on to something else. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it's great storytelling. And it's not, there's nothing rigid about it. I mean, you really have this sense of his enthusiasm for history and also how he sometimes kind of almost stumbles and says, well, you know, I have two or three different ways of thinking about this. There's one way of looking at, at the Battle of the Somme. And then there's another way, you know, these other group of military historians who think the Germans actually did did better than has been portrayed. And I just I just like that. It's like he's having a conversation with himself. Yeah. through the whole podcast. Yeah, no, it's it, it's definitely him him thrashing it out in the audio story storytelling format. It, it's it's just an astounding. That's one that I whenever I get the opportunity to sort of speak about podcasts cuz invariably somebody let me ask you this question. How long should a podcast be? Oh, great question. Well, I mean, I'm now going to speak uh, I'm now going to contradict myself because Dan Carlin's podcasts are incredibly long. But there's no fat on them. There are no moments where you go, Dan, you could have told this story and given this information so much faster than you did. I think most podcasts should be shorter than they are because they're not as well edited as they should be. So I think that most podcasts probably ought to be somewhere around 25 minutes, most. And why do I use that number? Because that's the typical commute time. Yeah. And that's also the typical amount of time that most people, once they get into it, are working out on a treadmill. They might like to think they do 45 minutes, but m most people do somewhat you know, less time. You know, again, I mean, other things that we do when we listen to podcasts in the kitchen, perhaps uh, cleaning up or making a meal or out walking the dog – I think that, that a podcast that's 50 minutes or an hour for many people is somewhat intimidating unless it's their regular habit, unless right. it's something they really love. But as a podcaster, I don't think you should assume that your audience is really going to love you right away. No. And so, you know, make the podcast shorter. And if you have more to say, then put it in two parts, perhaps. You know, I, I get this get this question whenever I do speak about podcasting. Invariably, somebody will ask, "Well, how, what's what's the perfect length for a podcast?" And generally, I, I'm kind of like, "Well, you know, how long is a piece of string?" It kind of really kind of depends. You know, yeah, as you right. build on your audience, you know, as you get your audience gets more familiar with you, you know, make them a little bit longer, but don't make them longer than they have to be. I, I, I've listened to great podcasts that were three minutes long. I've listened to great podcasts, Dan Carlin's podcasts that are they're four and five hours long. You know, it yeah. just it depends. I, I think that I think that one I think one real tip in answering how long should a podcast be is it should be shorter than you wish it was you wished it yeah. was. You should as a podcast producer be in mourning 
<laughs> for some of the stuff you left on the floor that you weren't able to use. Editing should involve a little bit of pain. If you're putting in everything in every show that you think people should listen to, then the show's too long. Yeah, and there are podcasters who do that. So, you know, if you can get your audience, if you if, if your audience loves you that much, then that, that's great, but I don't think that that's the case for most people. Richard, this has been great. I enjoyed talking to you about podcasting, about broadcasting. I love listening to your dog. So what, what can people hope for in your, in your podcast coming forward? How Do We Fix It is our weekly news solutions podcast. And uh, we are focusing as much as we can on, on more topical issues. And we're doing a two-parter this week and next week. First on Never Again, the extraordinary movement of these young people who've responded viscerally to the awful shooting at the school in Florida. And the second episode is going to be on what works with gun control. What are some of the things that could be done, not only for gun control, but also for, for gun rights and that bring people together, but also could work to reduce violence in this country? Yeah, I love that approach. It's it's much better than just like I'm going to say what I'm what I'm expected to say. You're going to say what I expected to say and nothing gets resolved. Let's take something away from the gravity of this situation and actually try to uh, make some sort of change. That's why I love the whole concept of solutions journalism. It's not just reporting things. It's actually trying to help people make the world a better place to live in. Exactly. Who, who yeah. The slogan you? we have for how do we fix it is repair a manual for the real world. Excellent. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it there. Richard, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the state of digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're there, follow the link at the top of the page and take our online survey. Answer a few questions, answer five questions, help us to make our podcast better. You can also subscribe to It's All Journalism on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. It takes a lot of work to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Would you like to get exclusive content and the latest information about It's All Journalism? Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.